just been hearing the rumblings about the 1619 Project in the New York Times series of uh, articles and stuff like that. And, uh, it's just kind of, I just thought, I can I can feel the heat sometimes from a story, and I decide, you know what, I'm not ready to wade into that yet. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to, but I'm just not ready for it yet. Yeah, I've, anyway. I've read some of it. But it's uh, it's come down upon me now, and according to the uh, the editor of the New York Times, the executive editor, he signaled that the New York Times is going to pivot from Russia coverage. You know why? <laughs> going to pivot from Russia coverage to focusing on race in the run-up to the 2020 election. Oh, good. Because the Russia coverage wasn't working for booting Trump out, so they thought maybe race and painting him as a racist would. Right. But the Times also declared it, quote, aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the con- contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story, we tell ourselves about who we are. Unquote. 1619 being the date of when uh, first started slipping sh- slaves to North America. That's our true founding. And some of the things that have been said during the, uh, the, the um, conversation about this in the 1619 project have been quite controversial. I would say, and they are not uh, restricted to that uh, journalism project either. You hear it all the time. It's taught in all the colleges and high schools of America. Uh, Tim Sandifer, Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Tim the Lawyer, uh, author of a number of tomes, including Frederick Douglass' Self-Made Man and a brand new book that I'm sure he'll tell us about, uh, joins us now. Hey, Tim, how are you? Just great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. Absolutely love the piece you wrote for Reason.com, which we will have linked so people can find it easily. Uh, we'll get on that. But um, First of all, what does this 1619 project get right, do you think? Or oh, well, You go ahead. You know, I'm glad you started with that, because I think it's important to say that a lot of this stuff is very good. A lot of these articles um, really, un, really cover an area of history that, to be frank, I think many white Americans are completely ignorant of. I think, In my ex- anecdotal experience, white Americans are largely not very aware of the history of slavery and are almost totally ignorant of what came after that, which was the virtual re-enslavement of the South in the years that followed um, about 1876 to 1900. Right. And, and, so and, the, the, and I would argue that, that, well. that people are also woefully ignorant of the fight to end slavery and how that worked. But anyway. That's exactly right, and that's the real shortcoming of the 1619 articles, is that it fails to address that, and it takes for granted this narrative that America was founded as a white supremacist nation, that slavery was protected in the Constitution, that this was the plan all along, that when the Founding Fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, they did not mean all men are created equal when they wrote all men are created equal, that what they really meant was all white men are created equal. And that myth is taken as a, as a given assumption by these, the articles in the series. And that's, that's really objectionable. It's, it's not true as a factual matter, and it has a really deleterious effect on how people think about the United States. It, it, it would be far more accurate to say that America's real founding isn't slavery, but the abolition of slavery. That the Constitution of the United States as we know it today has a lot more in common with what happened in 1865 than with what happened in 1776. And the, the articles totally ignore that. And they totally ignore the efforts of political leaders in the 1830s to, to, to the beginning of the Civil War to fight back against the rise of white supremacist 
thinking, which did not happen at the founding, but happened with the generation that came after the founding. They were the ones who created this myth that the Constitution is only for white people. Right. That was a white supremacist notion that a lot of people fought against. I love the point you make about the white men who wrote the Declaration of Independence, Adams, uh, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, slaveholders both, um, that when they wrote that document and the Constitution, what did they think that meant for slavery? Yeah, well, they meant they knew that it meant that slavery was inconsistent with their principles and could not be justified. And they said so. You know, to be frank, it's always mystified me that Jefferson takes so much flack on the issue of slavery when Jefferson at least risked his political career on several occasions because he spoke out against slavery. Now, did he do enough? Of course not. But in his own day, he was radical enough on the issue of slavery that he got beat down for it on multiple occasions and eventually gave it up because he knew that it was accomplishing it, it, nothing in, his, uh, in, in the direction of, of eliminating slavery. Now, maybe that was the wrong choice, but you, I think it's only fair to give Jefferson credit for having spoken out and said slavery was evil and could not be reconciled with the, con- with the Declaration of Independence. And so did the others. And, you know, to me, the really pivotal figure here who, again, goes completely unmentioned in the Times article is a series of articles is John Quincy Adams, John Adams's son. John Quincy Adams was one of the greatest men in American history. He knew all of the founding fathers personally, and he was more or less the godfather of the anti-slavery movement in this country. He was his protégés were the were the guys who grew up to lead the anti-slavery movement. And John Quincy Adams was was under no illusions about the founding. He said the founding fathers were anti-slavery. They said so. They said slavery was inconsistent. Now they didn't do enough about it. They didn't under they didn't figure out a plan of how to eliminate slavery. But the idea that they thought that they thought slavery was a good thing is just a lie. And unfortunately, it's taken as as a granted assumption by many people on the left, and it appears by the New York Times. What do you think the danger is of either? understudying the role of slavery in our history or or taking it on the way the New York Times is? What are the, the two um, danger zones on either side? Knowing too little about slavery, I think, leads to this mythology um, in two ways. One is the, there's this romanticist idea that slavery wasn't so bad, which is is revolting. But I think that there are still quite a lot of people who, who buy into this sort of gone-with-the-wind picture that uh, that really needs to be abolished. And the second thing is that it, it then you don't understand what came afterwards, which was that at, in 1876, a decade after the Civil War, the the northern political leaders decided to stop protecting civil rights in the South, and they withdrew American um, the, the American army that had been stationed in the southern states to protect the freedmen against terrorist groups. And as a result, the South was condemned to another century of slavery. Incidentally, this is precisely the same argument that's going on right now with regard to Afghanistan, is that voters are tired of the effort of protecting a a vulnerable class against terrorist groups. And their attitude is, well, let's just take our guns and go home. And, you know, whether that's right or wrong, we have to be clear eyed about the fact that that's going to condemn those people to at least another century of terrorist enslavement. Now, to, to me, the, uh, another really objectionable part is to, to look at the history of the nation as a whole rather than going state by state. And this is important for California because, you know, California, the, the arguments in the 1619 Project, is uh, basically it's trying to say that great American industries today are rooted in slavery and therefore that, it, that America's 
industrial and technological progress is at bottom based on slavery. Now, whatever you think about that, it's not true of California. California didn't have massive black manned enslaved plantations like the Old South did. If anything, California's industry is rooted on the exploitation of Chinese labor. The Chinese coolie system that built the railroads and manned the farms in the 19th century, none of that goes mentioned in the Times article. And although Chinese coolie labor wasn't as bad as slavery, nothing was as bad as slavery, it's the closest thing California ever had to slavery. And California is the most agriculturally productive state in the union. So if you're going to talk about this argument that somehow today's industry is rooted on slavery, you can't ignore the the abuses that the Chinese suffered in California history, and yet the articles com are completely silent about that, and, and ignore other ethnic groups also, as if it's all just black versus white throughout American history. Tim the Lawyer Sandifer, Tim Sandifer from the Goldwater Institute, has written a, a terrific piece refuting the premise that this country is based on slavery. Um, and, and we're discussing that in uh, allied uh, questions. We're going to take a quick break, Tim, with your permission, and come back and, be, and chat some more. Be prepared. I want to ask you about what you think about reparations, because I think the whole New York, sure. the New York Times is trying to set up the presidential election to Absolutely. be a lot about race, and a lot of the candidates are for reparations, and I just think that, that division well, and they conversation. say they are. But... <laughs> All on the way on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So we're talking about this 1619 project in the New York Times, which is all about um, uh, discussing the role of slavery in the United States and, uh, to many people's minds, really, really overstating it. And what they're really up to is they're trying to uh, set up the 2020 election as being all about the racist Trump and his racist followers. Right against everybody else that is uh, standing up for what is good and, and beautiful in the world. Right, and th that th there ends any discussion of Trump in this topic. I mean, because this is not about Trump. We're talking with Tim Sandifer, Tim the lawyer, as we've called him for years, as he started as a caller on this show. But uh, quoting from his own article today in uh, uh, Reason at Reason dot com, where the sixteen nineteen articles go wrong is in a persistent and off key theme: an effort to prove that slavery is quote the country's very origin. And the source of, quote, nearly everything that has truly made ex America exceptional. Slavery is the source of nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. That's a hell of a statement. Great, Scott. Your reactor, uh, your reaction, Tim. Well, I think it's, for one thing, it's incredibly vulgar and materialistic to say that what makes America great is its wealth. What makes great America great is the principle that all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. And the authors of that document understood at the time that it was incompatible with slavery. And it's been the efforts of Americans ever since to make that truth more real in the lives of America, first by abolishing slavery and then through the civil rights movements and so forth. That's the true source of American greatness. And if it had not accomplished a dime for America, it would still make it the, the greatest country to have been created, precisely because of, it's a matter of principle. And the people who understood that were people like Abraham Lincoln or John Quincy Adams or Frederick Douglass or Charles Sumner, who was nearly assassinated in the U.S. Senate for denouncing white supremacy. I mean, these people 
their efforts go almost completely unmentioned in the Times articles, as if it was just a matter of course that America is rooted in slavery, was premised on slavery, that the color line was written into the Constitution, when in fact the Constitution doesn't even use the word slavery and provided no legal protections for slavery whatsoever. Right. There's so many aspects to this. I, I'm trying to decide which to go off on. One thing that's always bothered me about the uh, self-flagellation over slavery, which is, of course, just anathema. It's it's horrific. It's indefensible and unforgivable. But the idea that it's a uniquely American problem, slavery is universal, has been universal. Every continent on Earth, practically every country, um, and and continues today. Yeah, um, and persists today. That's yeah, right. yeah. So I and, just and those things go unmentioned by in all of these debates. And the the reason why is because, as as Jack mentioned, the 1619 project is only partly about history. It's also really being used for political purposes, and that slavery discussions in the United States are so frequently used instrumentally, not to actually talk about slavery, but in order to advocate some contemporary project to redistribute wealth, and in the 1619 Project's case, to attack capitalism itself, when in fact it was capitalism that destroyed slavery. And it was uh, and it was slavery's defenders who fashioned the arguments against capitalism that are still being used today. The idea that it's too individualistic, that it's based on greed, et cetera, et cetera. All those arguments were created by slavery's defenders, and they're trotted out today as if uh, by by historians or pseudo historians who try to argue that slavery is somehow a form of capitalism. That's fascinating. Which is not only not only insane, but even Karl Marx didn't think that slavery was a form of capitalism. That is fascinating. It, it, yeah, it it really is. So, uh, speaking of uh, redistribution of wealth, it's my personal belief that there are uh, almost no politicians with two brain cells to rub together that actually think reparations ought to happen. But what's your answer to the idea of reparations? I'm, I'm in, I favor reparations to any person who is actually a slave. Um, with regard to those who are descendants of slaves, uh, no, of course not. I, I, the idea that, for one thing, not only does that inflict injuries and injustices on people who are not responsible for those crimes, but it, it fosters this bizarre idea that slavery could be wiped out by a single act, that the legacy of slavery could be wiped out by a single act. And, and so history is way too messy for that. This, the idea that slavery could be somehow resolved through reparations leads to the idea that you could pass a law through Congress today to re- redistribute wealth, and then there you go, slavery's over, we never have to hear about it again. Well, that's crazy. Uh, sla- if the legacy of slavery has inflicted so many harms on so many people, then the only way to resolve it is on an individual case-by-case basis over the long haul by treating people justly today not by taking wealth from the descendants of people whose ancestors came to this, this country after the Civil War and, and, giving it, and, and who themselves suffered discrimination and, and violence and giving it to other descendants of people whose ancestors were brought here against their will and, and forced into slavery. That, that sort of, of intergenerational uh, redistribution or intergenerational resentment is a recipe for political disaster in the long run. We know that because we've seen it happen time and time again in countries around the world. Tim, you've been incredibly fair on this topic. I think anybody who reads your article at Reason.com, which we'll link at armstrongandgetty.com as soon as it comes out, um, uh, you've been fair and you point out you know, the flaws in, 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 our, in our past. But f- for a, a black child born today, how much are they facing um, you know, leftover 
bad stuff from slavery that that is in their faces as, as an oppositional force to being successful. Well, there's I would say there's two answers to that. I think the I think for uh, in some ways the answer is it's pervasive and it's pervasive largely through white ignorance of slavery's legacy and and the reality of slavery the the fact that for a lot of white americans their knowledge of slavery comes from watching gone with the wind and roots um and so as a result they don't really understand the 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 effects it had and so that is going to haunt the life of any black child in the country the second answer is that it's it depends on the on the child it depends on its family circumstances where he's born what the socioeconomic status of that child is because it's an it has to be looked at as an individual case by case basis and obviously i could not presume to say what any individual black american's life is like nobody could right and it's it, it one of the problems with approaching the issue of slavery in the way the times does is that it takes that attitude that you can look at it in broad terms like that Tim Sandifer is the vice president for litigation, Goldwater Institute, uh, uh, the, the author of the absolutely fantastic Frederick Douglass Self-Made Man and a brand new tome that we'll be uh, talking to Tim about in a few days. Uh, Tim, we sure appreciate the time. We'll make sure everybody reads the uh, great piece you wrote for reason. Thanks, guys. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Tell me you'll hear a better fair and balanced, to borrow a term, conversation about that topic than that anywhere. You, you will not, sir. You will not. Armstrong and Getty Show. God's been good to me. You're not kind of interested in what Charles Manson was like as a father? I don't think they had... I'm not blaming the kid for anything he did. No. Well, the guy's 51 years old. So, Charles Manson, did he get married and have kids before he started his life of crime? No, no, no. He, He knocked up one of his followers. Okay. Um, and so I was like, so he wasn't living in a cul-de-sac as an insurance salesman for a period of time. (laughs) Charles Manson, no, not that had kids that I'm Uh, aware of. He was, uh, (laughs) uh, let's see. Uh, his mother was locked up and behind bars on that whole thing by the time he's 14 months old. Oh, wow. Oh, no, she was arrested for for stealing credit cards. Marshall, you ever run into the uh, Manson clan in any way, like after he was in jail? I did. They were running around? I did, indeed. Was there a hot tub involved? (laughs) No, no, no. This was outside the uh, the, uh, courthouse where a number of his followers, including some of the Manson girls, would gather every day, and they would be out there telling everyone that Charlie, Chuck, now Charlie, was innocent. And they would be asking for donations. Can you donate to his legal fund? Can you help us out with money? How did wow. they strike you as people that came under his sway? As stupid people or what? They struck me as probably very, very stone deluded uh, hippies. Stone deluded hot hippies. Gotcha. Yeah, no, they were there. They were uh, not bad looking at all. But you know, they were all in maybe eighteen, nineteen years old at the time. Yeah, like it. most weirdo death cults, it involves hot chicks yeah. and the guy who who runs the place getting to lay them down. So anyway, yeah, I was right. This guy was just he was uh, he was like a year, year and a half old when everybody went to jail for all this crap. But so I was thinking, well, just leave this guy. Alone. What do you care? I don't want to hear anything. But turns out this poor guy, and I don't. Uh, he says his dad's been misunderstood. Oh, really? Unfairly blamed, oh, wrongly boy. vilified. Oh, I'm boy. quoting. I would say 95 percent of the public looks at Charlie as this mass murdering dog, and it's really obviously just not true. He didn't necessarily kill. 
Yeah, he formed up this cult of personality and ordered people to go chop up pregnant ladies. Right. Uh, da, 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 I guess uh, I'm not looking for any kind of celebrity. I mean, this isn't something you run around and brag about. Well, okay, that was a more reasonable statement. Right. You know, I will tell you this, along those lines, I actually had my hair cut once by one of... Um, Here we go. One of Manson's victims. Wow. Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring oh, was a hairstylist to the stars, had this big Hollywood uh, salon. And I actually, uh, he actually cut my hair when I was like a very... You was, used to get to your hair cut by the person that was the haircutter of the stars. Let yep. me step in here and yes. tell listeners, Marshall Phillips, stunningly handsome young man. Well, box office matinee idol handsome. That Thank is you. true, and I was not trying to dispute that. It's just uh, that's usually kind of expensive to get your hair cut by the hair cutter of the stars. It was very expensive. My uh, mom would drive me in from Fontana, California to Hollywood to get my hair styled because I was going to be an actor. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there it was you go. All part, uh, all part of that. And uh, I remember, I remember. Uh, so you were kind of like uh, your mom was a stage mom, and you're kind of like uh, Honey Boo Boo. You were kind of like one of those kind <laughs> of things. like that. Uh, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was not a stage mom. I was leaning on her. I need to get this done. Some Did of the, she make you sleep with Roman Polanski? <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, some of the... Uh, that's when I was going to Hollywood professional school and really working hard at trying to get parts and being an actor. Did this, you get some notable auditions or parts you know, or anything I, like that? I, got, I, I was actually a walk-on on a show called The Rifleman. Back in the oh, day. Oh, wow. Right? That's really? a classic. That, was my, that, was my, that was my favorite TV show when I was my kid's really? age. Starring yeah. Chuck Connors, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was one of the a walk on. Uh, yeah. You're what, like a guy walking down a dirt road in a vest? No, I was just I was one of the little kids in the background. But how oh. crazy is that? That was yeah. my favorite TV show when I was a little kid. I had a little fake rifle and I talked about the rifleman all the time. Wow. And it just it was like I was obsessed with it. Right. And I probably saw you in one of the shows, and then many years later I would end up working with you. It's yeah. just weird how life. And another one of the uh, shows that I played a little kid walking back and forth behind the uh, stars uh, was uh, a little pigeonhole in your in your roles there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just Typecasting. We need somebody who can walk back and forth as a child. I know just the guy. Let him hey, uh, bring guy. me Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> this was probably way before any of your times, but Dobie Gillis. Oh, yeah. Dobie it's, Gillis. Absolutely. I, I know that. I had to walk on there. And then I went out and did a whole lot. Of, I did a bunch of auditions, did not get any like breakthrough roles. And my deal was, because I had owned part of a teenage nightclub, I sold that. I was about 14 or 15. And I had age fourteen or fifteen. You sold your share in a business. Yes, and I took that money. Not living with mom and dad at age thirty, I sold my half of a business <laughs> when I was fourteen. Yeah, I, and uh, so the deal was because I was hanging out with a bunch of Hollywood types, and uh, the deal was I could get into Hollywood Professional School, which is a half day high school. For kids who acted. Haley Mills went there, Brenda Lee, you know, a bunch of the uh, names of people you probably don't remember. But they were all child actors. And the deal was, it was a half-day high school, so the studios wouldn't have to pay to have a teacher on the lot. Oh. She'd go to have to get to school and then go act for a while. Yeah, everybody would go out and act, and I would get on the bus and, and look for an agent. And after, I don't know, about a month of that, I found an agent, and I started going out on auditions. And the deal was, as long as I could pay for all this myself, because I was living in Hollywood, and I was, you know, going to school. I was living with one of the teachers and her son at that school. As long as I could pay for it myself, I could, you know, stay. Well, 
I didn't get enough jobs, so I ran out of money and mm-hmm. had to come back to Fontana High School. But yeah. And how old were you during this period? Probably 15, 16 okay, years I, old. I asked this seriously. Yeah. Uh, did any casting directors or directors try to get in your pants? No, but I will tell you another interesting story. When I was looking for an agent, I walked into this very ornate agent's office. I mean, it was like chandeliers and everything else. And it turned out it was Rock Hudson's agent. Ah. And I went in with my little portfolio and that, and I talked to the receptionist there. And he uh, looked at me. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry. So we're only looking for pretty boys. And I went, I'm pretty. What? (laughs) Wait a minute. And he said, nah, you, you really wouldn't fit in here. Do you think he just caught on to the fact you weren't gay? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think he was trying to tell me in a way I didn't quite comprehend. Rock Hudson, a famous gay uh, yeah. in the closet. Closeted, right. And I think I, I think he was Tab Hunter's agent. A lot of these, these Hollywood so idols. It was like a, a cabal to recruit teenage gay boys for whatever purpose. Or so it would seem. Well, no, no, no. He actually, he actually warned me away. I mean, he basically said, "Well, yeah, because oh, you were straight, right?" Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Allegedly, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I don't. I, why would crazy, I throw that? It was crazy times. Rewind that, Michael. Rewind that. Oh, that was inappropriate. I don't even know what it means. So, if you'd have been a little more open-minded, your career could have really taken off. Then, open-minded. Having sex with Rock Hudson isn't being open-minded. <laughs> yeah. It's being raped by an adult. Yeah. Sort of man are you, he says, deflecting criticism from himself. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I've always liked the female form. So, uh... <laughs> Amen to that, brother. I hear that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Hollywood stories from Marshall. And you know the uh, movie you were talking about with Brad Pitt and... Uh, and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio, yeah. That was set about the time that I was working at KLOS. Because when I've seen the clips and that, the sh- you know Sharon Tate was around, and uh, that's that's the Manson yeah, connection set, again. Set in nineteen sixty nine. Okay. You know, you had Wonderland and Laurel Canyon and all the all the uh, rest, and that was about the time I was working at uh, KLOS and other stations in L.A. And that's about when you started running guns for the Contras. But we don't have any time <laughs> for that on this episode. So join us tomorrow, won't you? Armstrong and Getty. If you could have dinner with any three writers throughout history, who would you have dinner with? To me, that's it's a symptom of our soft modern age. The question used to be one person you could have lunch with. Now they've expanded it to three, so you don't have to make tough choices. Now, if I'm going to permit the three-person rule, I insist it be three associated people, like Mo, Larry, and Curly. Tinkers, Evers, and Chance for your baseball fans. Got to be the got to be a trio. Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, the Bee Gees. You know something like that. Yeah. Before well, before I kill this guy's uh, humor because I've got more to say about this. But okay. I thought this particular author's and it, I'd never heard of this guy, but I thought his answer was pretty good. Oh, cool. He said, I have a lot of issues with this question. I realize the purpose of the hypothetical is to reflect some deeper insight into the subject's ascetic sensibility, but I can't help but take it literally. <laughs> First of all, I have several friends who have written things, and I'd rather have dinner with three old friends than three famous strangers, regardless of how talented they were. Wow, so but, far so good. <laughs> yeah. 
But the fact that this proposed scenario involves the possibility of selecting guests who are dead or alive really forces my hand. It seems insane to pick any living person if dead people are eligible. There's no author alive who's a fraction as compelling as any dead garbage man. And there's no theoretical discussion about the craft of writing, and that would be half as interesting as, what was it like to die? No freaking kidding. Well, this guy makes me look not literal and a pain in the ass. But it's true. Yeah. It is definitely true. Wow. So what were your last thoughts? What was it like to die to someone who could respond authoritatively to that query? The only problem is that dead people might not understand what was going on, why were they were suddenly alive, or why they were being forced to make conversation with some bozo at a dinner party. <laughs> right. And why am I revived to talk to an author I've never heard of and not my loved ones? <laughs> they might just sit there and scream for two hours. <laughs> I don't know what this guy is or who he is. I want to read his stuff, though. But that is true. <laughs> ah! well, you know, what is this? No, it's okay. You're alive. <laughs> You're alive for two hours to attend this dinner party for me. Ah! And even if they didn't scream and they kept it together, I'm sure they'd be highly distracted. If I invite Edgar Allan Poe to dinner, it seems possible he'd spend the whole time expressing amazement over the restaurant's air conditioning. <laughs> right. Very true. Right. Um, I have this daydream, actually. I think I've mentioned it in the past. Just uh, I, Sometimes when I'm killing time... And I try to do this instead of staring at my phone these days. I just daydream about something. One of my favorites is... Like uh, Ben Franklin, great founding father, great political thinker, great scientist, all of a sudden appears in the modern day, and for some reason, I'm assigned to take him around. And I think about how I would explain, would explain various technical marvels to him. You know, like an airplane goes overhead. I mean, after he got done dropping WTFs, you know, I'd have to explain, because listen, I'm a words guy, and I'm decent at that, but I am not an engineer. And so you've got this polymath genius. And I'm trying to explain to him, a jet engine, uh, Dr. Franklin, works. Hmm. The whirling blade sucks in air, and the shape of the engine makes it jet out so fast, the object goes forward. It's like when you let the air out of a balloon. Did you have balloons? Balloon. You had balloons. Good, 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 good. So it's like the air coming out of a balloon. And, you know, he'd probably figure out I was a ninny pretty quickly even though I know a hell of a lot more about technology than he does, that wouldn't last long. Why do you think it's such a common um, um, thought experiment of a, anyone you could have di- dinner with, dead or alive, or similar to the time machine going somewhere? Dinner table events. Well, it, the Just great, expand your imagination. The great about. oppressor is time, you know? Number one, it's undefeated, as Positive Sean often points out. You're restricted to your time on Earth, and there's just no escaping that. Right. There's just no mechanism for talking to somebody from a different time. And I just think that we really want to throw that uh, prison door open, you know, throw off that yoke. I think there's it's a it's a deep question that's disguised as a fun thing. Right. So it's that's a good that's a good way to put it. You can kind of learn a lot about somebody. If, you know, if they, hey, what three people do you want to talk about? Well, or, and they say three, you know, kind of dull people. Okay, you're a dull person. You know, you, you want to have boring <laughs> meals. Um, but yeah, it, 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 at least there's the sense of this will be very revealing, whether or not it actually is or not. I think there's that weird, oh, this is a fun topic, but there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah. Here, here's an idea for you. If you'd like to have no friends, here's what you do. You bring that up. You say, uh, you know, the classic is always if you could have lunch with one person. You know, who would it be? Wait for your friend to answer. 
I'll I'll use positive Sean as my uh, victim. Who, who would it be in your case? Dead or alive? Uh, one or three? Dead, dead or alive? One. One. Uh, a, a philosopher David Hume. Wow, that's a good one, Sean. I, that's pretty good. I'm afraid you'd you'd really you'd bore David Hume. <laughs> I'm afraid there's nothing you could say that David Hume you would think enjoy. David Hume would accept your lunch invitation. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think that would go well for you. I think he would not be impressed. And no matter what answer any friend gives for the rest of your life, tell him that. Abraham Lincoln, uh, he had no patience for people who wasted his time. So maybe come up with someone different. What, what's your answer? Oh, man. I, I don't know. I go back and forth and back and forth. It, it, I'm not sure you can pass up Jesus. Yeah, I'd go Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. That's pretty good. <sighs> What about Cooter from Dukes of Hazard? <laughs> Cooter from Dukes yeah. of Hazard. See, there's, there's an answer where you, you yeah. that's very revealing. Uh, and you know what? You and Cooter could probably, uh, you'd get along fine, Michael. I'll tell you, since you guys already picked Jesus, I would go for Timothy Leary. Why? Just because he wanted to drop acid? No, no, no. I had several conversations with Timothy Leary. He was fascinating. Yeah, was I believe amazing. that. Absolutely I believe that. amazing. I'd yeah. love to have another sit down. If you talk to somebody, uh, as this person pointed out jokingly, do, the, do, do, do they get to describe their having died? I mean, anybody who's died would be more interesting than anybody that's ever been on Earth. Actually, if they get to describe yeah, the dying process, yeah, and if there's anything to it. Although now, he, if they just say, I, I don't know, it just ended. Well, I had and there was George, nothing else. The, the TV went off. Although you'd, <laughs> yeah. although you'd have an answer of some sort. I was uh, going to mock Marshall for skipping from Jesus to Timothy Leary, <laughs> um, but you know, I've I've often thought like Lincoln or um, uh, or or George Washington. But uh, you know, uh, George Washington was an incredibly disciplined military man, and I uh, something tells me he would probably have fairly simple, direct things to say. And in terms of his dying, you say, yeah, I was really sick, and I fell asleep, and I just didn't wake up. Why the hell am I here, by the way? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, getting back to the thing. my feet for a week. <laughs> well, I, I think many right. of us are hoping for something that happened after that. that ah. didn't just, yeah. Oh! Oh! The greatest unanswered question that exists for all of humans through all of time. What happens when you die? No, we pretty much just wait around to be revived for dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> It's not heaven, it's not hell. Yeah. It's just there's a TV in the corner. and A waiter shows it's up. It's on too loud. They walk into a little waiting room that's got right. those booths like you're at right. uh, the diner or something like that, and they tell you, uh, you need to wait until somebody says they want to have dinner with you. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, party of three. And <laughs> Poe, right. Mr. Poe. You might yes, hear sir. me for thousands of years before anybody decides they want to have dinner with you, dead or alive. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many answers to that question that, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And none of them will ever come true. Although the any person living or dead, the living thing, I suppose you could become one of those obsessives who ends up going to the prom with Beyonce, you know? Um, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, I really, really want to have uh, lunch with George Will. You might be able to stalk them into submission, I guess. Wait, just to finish that one. So anybody living, do I have an answer for living? Several of the ideas, like George Will, you just mentioned, I interviewed him like two weeks ago. Yeah, I've talked to him. Practically like times, having lunch yeah. with him. So, Who that I can't talk to now? I'd enjoy talking to Trump, obviously. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If, if I could get... I, I There are a number... Almost any president I'd love to talk to if I could get completely honest answers out of him. For some oh, reason, yeah. I was thinking about this the other day. I'd like to ask Barack Obama about blank if he could answer it honestly, but nobody ever would because they right. got, you know... 
I think you wouldn't want to taint your legacy. My current living person would probably be Malcolm Gladwell, just because I like be the way his, his brain works, and I figured mm-hmm. that conversation would be interesting no but, matter what we talked about. But we could probably arrange that if we really yeah, wanted yeah, to. Yeah, so. yeah, the, the living thing kind of, it's yeah. like, eh, I'm about, already here with these How people. about Xi Jinping? I don't speak Chinese. We can work that out. Google Translate. We would just stare at each other. Just each of you take out your phone. So, you like oppressing people? Boy, I saw It's not so bad. <laughs> I saw an interview with Kissinger the other day. He said she is a tough man. He is a very tough guy and an adversary we should not overlook. Have you ever noticed he always, 100% of the time, has that same sourpuss look on his face? He always has that same look like he smelled something foul. Yeah, yeah, yeah he is... A hard ass among hard asses. I was going to say who, she or Kissinger? <laughs> well, oh, Kissinger was a delightful fellow. Uh, um, no, Xi Jinping yeah. is, uh, yeah, I'd love to have heard that. I'd like to know more about the guy. He's uh, he's obviously brilliant. You get appointed president for life by a country of 1.4 billion people. You got to have something on the ball. If, come if, up with. if the truth serum... Angle is is a given, kind of like your oh, Barack thing. That yeah. that opens up a list of possibilities. Oh, yeah. Like oh, yeah. little, little OJ, hey Juice. I think uh, I don't know. think there's any need for that. No, it might be fun to hear him say it. Right, right. Just have like a, my iPhone recording, and then I'd go viral on Twitter right. when I got the confession <laughs> or something. Unless his psychology is so broken, he doesn't know that he. That would him. be fascinating. Well, right. Yeah. yeah, right. Either way, it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> 